Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 22, specifically verses 41 to 46. And then our sermon passage this morning is taken, taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. These seem to be disparate passages in one sense. One is from the Gospel at the very end of Christ's life, and the other is even before he was born. And yet, hopefully, if, if there is success, you'll see that these passages fit together quite nicely. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. That's our scripture reading, and our sermon passage is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Brothers and sisters, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, because it's important for us to remember that this is the word of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. This is not the voice of man. These aren't the words of men. This is the voice of the Lord. This is his word. So please give your full attention to God's word as it is now read. Matthew twenty-two forty-one to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now turning to Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be, so, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired, and errant, and true word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you. Lord, your word is sufficient. And each and every time we open it, O Lord, we see its sufficiency for us. It is 
of great benefit for us to read it, O Lord, because it is you speaking to us. Oh Lord, we can trust that when we open your word, when we hear your word read, that we don't have to listen for the word of God. All we must do is listen to it. Because you are faithful. And you have given to us your word. You have transmitted it down to us through the centuries, through the ages. You have superintended its copying and its printing. And what we have, O oh Lord, is trustworthy. It is reliable. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. It tells us all that we need to know about who you are and what you have done for our salvation. Our gracious God, we pray that you would teach us from your word today. We thank you, O Lord, that we have in this passage, these passages of Scripture, profound teaching. We have in these passages of Scripture a description of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would help us now as your word is to be preached, that you would guide the preaching of it, that you would bless the one who preaches, bless the ones who hear. May we worship you, O Lord, through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this passage that we read from Matthew chapter 22, we read there about how Jesus, who had essentially been on trial by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not in any official sense, but in a very unofficial way, they had been trying Jesus since he had cleansed the temple back in chapter 21. We read about how he turned the tables on them and began to examine them, began to put them on trial in that passage that we read from Matthew 22. These religious leaders had been peppering Jesus with question after question. They were hoping to entangle him in his words, as chapter 22, verse 15 of the Gospel of Matthew says. But then beginning in Matthew 22, verse 41, Jesus started questioning them. And in verses 41 to 46, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, a psalm that if you read through it, it only makes sense if the long-awaited Messiah is the Son of God who came in the flesh. There's no other way properly to understand that psalm unless it is speaking of the Son of God. How else could King David, whom every su subsequent king who followed after him would have to refer to him as Lord, how else could it be that one of his descendants would be Lord to him? That David, King David, would refer to his descendant, his son, as Lord. Jesus used this simple verse to show to the Pharisees and to us who read it today that the Messiah is the Son of God incarnate, the eternal Son of God who came in the flesh. And this morning's passage in Luke helps us further to understand the coming of the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. How did he get here? And why did he come? As we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to consider this thought. God's Son, begotten from all eternity, took up human flesh, being born of a virgin, to cover the sins of his people. God's Son, 
begotten from all eternity, took up human flesh, being born of a virgin, to cover the sins of his people. The sermon is just a two-pointer today. The first point, the favored one. The second, the virgin birth. Again, the the two points of the sermon, the two sections of the sermon today are the favored one and the virgin birth. Let's look at the first section now, the favored one. In the first half of Luke chapter 1, if you have read this recently, if you haven't, this is a great time to read it. But you'll, you'll read about the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist And so in the first half of of Luke's uh, Gospel, chapter 1, we read of Zechariah, who's a priest in the temple. You probably, you know Zechariah well. While Zechariah was carrying out his priestly duties in the temple, Gabriel, who was an angel of the Lord, appeared to him and told him that his wife Elizabeth would conceive and bear a son in her old age. But Zechariah, out of doubt, questioned how this could possibly happen since he and his wife were well beyond childbearing years. And in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, the angel said to Zechariah, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Gabriel had told Zechariah that he and Elizabeth would experience a miracle of biblical proportions, similar to Sarah's and Hannah's pregnancies in the Old Testament, and Zechariah didn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. He was incredulous at the the news that he was being told. As if it weren't enough that an angel was appearing to him in the temple of the Lord, speaking to him, he simply could not believe it. And so as a sign of the truth of Gabriel's words to Zechariah, Zechariah was made unable to speak until their son, John the Baptist, was born. Now in our passage, the same angel, Gabriel, six months later, appeared to Elizabeth's kinswoman, Mary. And he came to tell her of an even greater miracle that was about to happen. We're told in chapter 1, verse 26, that Gabriel was sent from God to a little town in Galilee called Nazareth. An angel who stands in the presence of God was now standing before a young woman, a virgin, who was betrothed to a slightly older young man, Joseph. And Luke says in verse 27 that the the virgin's name was Mary. That's an anglicized version of the Greek name Mariam, which most likely means excellence. And Luke also says that Joseph is of the house of David. It's an important detail, especially in light of our scripture reading from Matthew chapter 22. William Hendrickson and others argue, based on Matthew's and Luke's genealogies, they're slightly different in, 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 in specific ways, that both Joseph and Mary were descendants of King David. But whether or not that is true, even with one of the parents being a descendant, it's enough. Jesus will be a son of David. In verse 28, Gabriel speaks to to this young woman, and he says to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, you may be aware of this. Some of you were raised in the Catholic Church, and you may hear right there that Hail Mary full of grace. That's the passage from which this Roman Catholic prayer comes. And you probably, if you haven't heard of it in terms of prayer, you've heard of it in in terms of football. 
Hail Mary, we've got to throw it up, we've got to get it down the field, hopefully somebody will catch it and we'll score. That's not the original uh, intent of the passage, the verse before us today. Gabriel certainly greets Mary, so hail is an appropriate translation of the first word. It's, hello, Mary, he's saying. However, the word in the prayer that's translated full of grace, it's a passive word in the original text, meaning that Mary is a recipient of grace, not a bestower of grace, as the Catholics believe. She's not the one who, who... pours out grace upon her. She received grace. That's all that Gabriel means by this. She's full of grace because God has given her grace. Now, when Gabriel greets her, verse 29 says that Mary was greatly troubled and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She doesn't understand what Gabriel is saying to her. But Gabriel, rather than rebuking her for being troubled by his words, because her, her being troubled by it is not, a, not a, the result of doubt, a lack of faith, as, as Zechariah's was he comforts her. In verse 30, he tells her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now this phrase, you have found favor, it can be taken in a couple of different ways, can't it? Why has she found favor? Well, she's deserved God's favor. That, that's one way to take it. God looked down and he saw this, uh, this great young woman uh, whose name means excellence, and he thought, wow, she's the one. It could mean that, but in our context, what it means is you have received God's unmerited grace. You found favor, passive. You have received God's grace. There's nothing in the context to indicate that Mary had done anything to deserve God's favor. God simply bestowed upon her his free and unmerited grace. She was probably a typical young woman. We would probably call her a girl in our day, but she was probably a typical young woman of her day. And so he simply bestowed upon her this free, undeserved, unmerited grace. And because she has found favor with God, she has no reason, Gabriel is telling her, to fear his words to her. In verse 31, Gabriel announces to Mary that he has been sent to what he has been sent to say. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now the wording here is very similar to Isaiah 7:14, the passage at the top of the order of worship for this morning's service, but it's not identical to it. Isaiah 7:14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Gabriel tells Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Gabriel continues in verses 32 to 33, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Zechariah was told, back in verses 16 and 17, that his son, John, would go before God in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. John was to go before the Lord their God, but Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. And God will give to him the throne of his father David. John the Baptist was called to go before Emmanuel, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus had come to ascend the throne of David. He was the long-awaited king who would rule forever. He was the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to David way back in 2 Samuel. But there was only one way for the eternally begotten Son of God, who is coexistent and co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, to be born of a woman and become the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that's where we go now in our second point, the virgin birth. Mary wants to know the $64,000 answer to the question. She puts the pertinent question to Gabriel in verse 34. How will this be since I am a virgin? Now Mary perhaps thought that what Gabriel was saying here was supposed to apply to a son who had been conceived by ordinary means. Perhaps she thought that maybe Gabriel thought that, that, that Joseph and Mary, though they were betrothed, had not quite kept themselves chaste in that period of betrothal before they were formally married. She had no ability to anticipate what Gabriel was going to say to her next. In answer to, his question, to her question, Gabriel responds, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is not just some normal child who God the Father will later sort of adopt as his son. Gabriel makes it very clear to Mary that this child would not be conceived in her marriage to Joseph. It would be a supernatural conception because the child born would be the Son of God. And he would be called holy because he is holy, he is utterly without sin, completely without sin. He would not inherit the sin of Adam because using the language of the Shorter Catechism, Jesus did not descend from Adam by ordinary generation. And this is why the doctrine of the virgin birth is so central to our doctrine of Christ. It's so central to, to the Christian faith. In order to save man, in order for us, you and me, and all of the rest of humanity to have any hope of salvation, Jesus the Christ must be 100% God and 100% man. The one who would save his people from their sins must himself be sinless. And there's only one way that can happen. And that is if Jesus the Christ has as his father, God. He would be unblemished. He would be spotless. He would be the lamb who would be offered up as the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. And so the only way that this was possible was for Mary's son, Jesus, to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. Now, the angel anticipates Mary's uncertainty about what he has said. He, it would have seemed incredible to her, too much for her to believe. So in verse 36, he gives her a reason to believe what he's told to her. He gives her a sign for why she should believe. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren. If Mary needs proof that what Gabriel was telling to her is going to take place, she only needs to seek out her relative Elizabeth to see what God is capable of doing. And that's what she does. Mary had asked, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And Gabriel tells her in verse 37 that nothing will be impossible with God. Now, this is a very important point for us to remember. There are many people who struggle with believing in the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. There may be some of you here today who are just not quite sure. 
You don't quite buy it. And you may think it's not really that important to who I am as a Christian to, to hold to this. For many people, this miracle is simply too much for us to accept. But listen to this. If the virgin birth of Christ is too much for God to accomplish, if he can't do it, if he simply wouldn't do it, then he isn't truly God. By definition, God is able to do that which we think is impossible. Otherwise, he would not be God. If it is impossible for God to perform the miracle of the virgin birth, then any other miracle is impossible for God. Our salvation is impossible if the virgin birth of Christ is impossible. But even if God is unwilling to do this, even if it's possible for him, but he's unwilling to do so, he's not the God of the Bible. He's not the God who is revealed to us on the pages of Scripture everywhere else. You remember that in Matthew 19, there was the rich young man who went away sorrowful when Jesus commanded him to sell all of his possessions and give what he had gotten in the sale to the poor. The disciples were surprised when Jesus said how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, And in 19 verse 25 of Matthew's gospel, the disciples asked Jesus, who then can be saved? If this rich young man who has everything and and who by his own admission has really done everything to keep the law of God in perfection, if he can't be saved, then what hope do we have? Jesus responded in verse 26 of Matthew 19, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus was telling this young man, he was telling his disciples, you cannot buy your way into heaven. You can't do your way into heaven. You can't be obedient enough to get yourself into heaven. It is impossible for you, but what is impossible for man is not impossible for God. If the virgin birth to your way of thinking is an impossibility, then your own salvation is just as much an impossibility. But with God, all things are possible. Nothing will be impossible with God, Gabriel tells Mary. If God can cause an elderly, barren Elizabeth to conceive and give birth to John the Baptist, he can just as easily cause Mary to conceive and give birth to Jesus. Now, it's odd in our society, we are constantly told that that we have no limits. There's nothing that you can't do. You want to change your sex? You can change your sex. You can marry whomever you want to marry. You can believe whatever you want to believe. You can do whatever you want to do. There are no limits for you and your, your potential. You can do it all. We're told we have no limits. But at the same time, our society places every kind of limit on God. Our society says, no, God can't do that. God wouldn't possibly do that. God would never tell you that you can't do that. No. The truth is, we have limits, but God does not. If Mary doubted this earlier when she questioned how this would happen, she seems not to doubt any longer. Verse 38 says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now we have to understand, we we are not Roman Catholics. We do not venerate Mary. We don't hold her up as the mediatrix 
through whom we pray to reach the ears of her son, the Lord Jesus. We don't do this. But I think we all could do with a little dose of Mary in one sense. There's no way that she understood what the angel Gabriel was telling to her. There's no way that she understood the mechanics that would take place, even though Gabriel had given her a pretty good description of what was going to happen and how she was going to conceive the Son of God in human flesh. There's no way that she could understand it because this is a miraculous thing. It's a supernatural thing. By definition, it cannot be comprehended by human minds. And a lot of us are that way. We think about the virgin birth and we don't, it's not possible because we can't comprehend how it could come to pass, how it could take place. When in reality, all we need to do is say this. I am the servant of the Lord. I'm the servant of the Lord. I don't understand it. I don't fully get it. I may not completely have the, the absolute faith in this that I ought to have, but I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Not because of any virtue in herself. Mary was chosen by God to give birth to his son. She was a sinner just like you and I am. And because of God's choice, this young woman, this girl's life, probably 12 or 13 or 14 years old, was going to be forever altered. She would know inexpressible joy, just like mothers know. But she would also know excruciating pain because of the son she would bear. She would have the joy of holding this baby in her arms, the joy of watching him grow and mature, the joy of being astounded at his ability to teach even the, the, the leaders in the temple. But she would also see him die the death that he did not deserve. So that she and everyone else who believed in Jesus would have eternal life. She doesn't know any of this at this point in her life. But she did know what Gabriel had just told her about the conception of her baby. And she simply accepts what Gabriel says. I am the servant of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we would do well to say that far more often than we do. But we don't. She accepted the impossible with childlike faith. And we are called to do no less. We are called to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And here's why. Why should you believe what to, to many sounds like a myth? What to many sounds like just some sort of folk story? Why should you believe this? It's because of this. If you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save His people from their sins then believing in the virgin birth is not so difficult. And if you truly believe this, if you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal Son of God, then you will be saved. You are one of the people for whom Jesus came. That doesn't mean that you have all of the answers in life. But it does mean that you have eternal salvation. You have eternal rest in your future with the Lord. 
Jesus is the Son of the Most High. He came to save sinners. He was born so that our sins could be covered, atoned for by the perfect sacrifice of his death. From the moment of that child's conception, his destiny was death on the cross. So that sinners like you and me can have not merely the hope of salvation, but the assurance of it. And he was willing to do this, not because you and I are worthy, not because we have merited it in any way. He came to save us out of pure mercy. And his salvation is offered to us as a free gift of grace. He was willing to do what many say is impossible so that sinful people who believe in him could live with him forever. And all that you and I must do, all that's required of us, is to believe in him, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of Christmas. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are grateful to you that what is impossible for us is not impossible for you. We're grateful to you, Lord, that that which is beyond our comprehension, our ability to understand, is not beyond yours. We acknowledge, O oh Lord, happily that your ways are not our ways. Your ways are high, higher than ours are. And that if we could understand your ways, O oh Lord, you would not be God or we would not be mere creatures. And so, O oh Lord, we contentedly confess that we are your creatures and we joyously confess that we are your children. We thank you, O oh Father, that you sent your Son into this world, that he took up flesh, that he lived a perfect and sinless life, that he was obedient in every way to every single command you uttered for him to keep, that he was willing to die on a cross in our place, we thank you, O oh Lord, that by faith our sins were counted as his own and his righteousness is counted as our own. And we are thankful, O oh Lord, that after his resurrection and after his ascension into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of believers, to be our source of comfort, our source of life, our source of sanctification our source of growth. We long for that day, O oh Lord, when we will be glorified, when no longer will we have to struggle and deal with sin and all of its effects. But we pray, O oh Lord, that in the meantime, you would continue to sustain us, that you would continue to grow us, that you would continue to hold us firmly in your hand, even as you have promised to do. We thank you, O Lord, and we pray this all in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.